0: Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl,
1: and I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh,
0: this is our Republican Crackup edition <laughs> of uh, of Powerhouse Politics. We're going to be talking later in the broadcast. Is it a broadcast podcast? Sure, uh, sure. Uh, with uh, with Bill Kristol, uh, who uh, we'll find out if he still considers himself a Republican and his efforts to try to counter the Steve Bannon efforts to uh, to basically primary everybody in the world in the midterms, except for uh, Ted Cruz.
1: Yeah. And we'll also be talking to Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, and very active on the gun issues, and also to respond to this, uh, this fight between President Trump and one of his Senate colleagues, Bob Corker. Uh, this is Corker uncorked, and it is a Republican Party at absolute war with itself in every front. It's not just that Steve Bannon is firing away. It's that the president himself is now uh, fighting not just with the Senate majority leader and with a bunch rank and file members but the chairman of the senate foreign relations committee a man who has stood by trump's side has camp- campaigned with him was on his vice presidential shortlist was on the shortlist for secretary of the state and has tried his best to work within the system and now saying he thinks the system is broken essentially bob corker saying there is no method there is only madness
0: so Republicans have 52 members in the Senate. That's correct. There's 100 people in the whole Senate. Uh, so far, so good. Okay. So it's a what we call a two-seat majority. Right. So you've gone to war with Bob Corker. You've previously gone to war with Jeff Flake. You've previously gone to war with John McCain. Uh, your political arm has uh, run ads against uh, Dean Heller out in Nevada. Your former chief strategist is talking about supporting primary challengers, uh, to uh, to Roger uh, Wicker down in, in Mississippi, to uh, Barrasso out in Wyoming, and every other Republican up for uh, up for re-election. You didn't so, even
1: get to Rand Paul and Lil Marco and Lion Ted, who are well, all members well, of the United States they're,
0: they're kind of like in the—well, actually, so maybe that goes to show that it doesn't really matter because Trump went to war— I mean no but with nobody more than Ted Cruz and Ted Cruz is you know been kind of on the on the reservation. And he
1: golfed with Lindsey Graham just this week after Lindsay giving out a Graham, sample, Uh we thought was not not too bright. Yeah. And do, you,
0: and do you remember what Rick Perry said about uh about Donald Trump? Cancer um, on conservatism. conservatism. Yes, Can- and he's and now he's, in the cabinet, I yes. believe. So and saying yes. nice things. So I don't know, but but if I but if I'm just looking at that 52 yeah. uh Republican senators two-seat majority and I'm counting I think more than two that he is currently at war with. How do you, how do you? cobble together a uh, governing a majority.
1: Well, you don't. And look at look at taxes where Bob Corker has already said that uh, it will not happen if the, that he votes for a tax package that adds to the deficit. Uh, and look at the fact that uh, as he's prepares to move toward decertification of the Iran deal, that's going to land in Bob Corker's lap at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The White House is now on record saying that Bob Corker l- laid out the red carpet for Barack Obama, which is just flatly ridiculous. By the
0: way, what is that all about? I You know, I covered the Iran deal. And, and, and then when when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about it at the briefing, she said, "Yeah, it was it was you know it's Bob Corker and Nancy Pelosi. I don't, Nancy Pelosi had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I mean, it was was that? I She's, mean, I, she did say it was pretty factual. That pretty <laughs> factual. Pretty factual. Uh, I mean, Bob Corker opposed the Iran deal. He led the effort to defeat it. They got fifty eight votes against it, and they needed sixty. They got all the Republicans. There were fifty four at the time. They got four Democrats." How is it that Bob Corker laid out the red carpet for the Iran deal? He
1: he didn't, but the White House says that he did because they are at war. And to answer your question, there is no way to govern that way because at this moment in time, the president is not interested in governing. He is interested and he's bought into, once again, the the feeding of the base and the Bannon instincts, which say we're going to burn things down. And these guys are a problem. So the, the New York Times
0: and our friend, friend of the podcast, Jonathan Martin, who interviewed Corker, recorded the conversation. The president thought he was tricked into recording it. We now saw the transcript of the interview and we see that actually Corker wanted to be sure that, that Jonathan was recording it. He was it recorded and, saying, I want it recorded. And, and made it clear that, uh, that he was recording. And in fact, I think two of his staffers were recording, just in case one recorded. I mean, this was not a secret recording. Right. But um, I wanted to play a little, a little clip of of the we, we've already heard a thousand times the World War Three comment and the president and you know, all that kind of stuff. But 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 here's another clip of Jonathan Martin's recording of his interview with Bob Corker. Just the the
2: volatility is you know, to anyone who has been around um is to a degree alarming but again I don't wish him harm. He's got people around him that have been able to keep him generally speaking in the middle of the road. The right. tweets um, especially as it relates to foreign policy issues yeah. I know have been very damaging to us, yeah. okay? Yeah. And um, I do wish that would stop. Uh, but you
0: know, as evidence this morning he just uh it's just something he has to do. So I wanted to play that not simply for the words of Bob Corker, but really just so you can get a sense of the Jonathan Martin style. I love J. Uh, we love you know, J. I mean, and it's, it's a great, a, it's a great get, yeah, it's a great get. But that is that's classic yeah, J. And, and 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 the typing. No, no, uh, J. Mart's uh, Mart is is a class act. But that that was that's a. I mean, it's one of the bombshell interviews. Uh, yeah, of, of all I, time. I, I mean, mean, it's as big, I mean, as, big as they God. get. I it's mean. as big
1: as they get because it's not just it's not just another fight. What, what Bob Corker is saying here is that you may have thought and there's been always a theory out there with Iran and North Korea that uh, he's playing good cop, bad cop. And he says explicitly that's not going on here. And the consequences here as Bob Corker lays it out, literally World War 3 You've got a nuclear standoff with North Korea. You have the potential for another nuclear showdown down the road with Iran depending on how that goes. Uh, not to mention the war on terror. Uh, this is a, A critical point in the presidency, a critical point in the nation, and you have the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, a guy who's loyal to the president, saying I'm worried. I am worried that this president doesn't have the stability to handle this moment. That's big.
0: All right, and on the line right now we have Senator Chris Murphy from the state of Connecticut, a state I'm quite familiar with. Uh, As a matter of fact um, at one point I could have been a constituent of of Senator (laughs) Murphy. Uh, So uh, uh, thank you for joining us Senator.
2: We're sorry to lose you, but glad to be with you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> um so we've we, we just been talking about this extraordinary interview uh, that, that that Bob Corker gave to the New York Times and and we've got a lot lot of issues we want to talk to you about, but I just got to ask you as a um, as, as a as a member of of the uh, of the Senate as somebody that that knows uh, Bob Corker as somebody that knows what it's like to work with a member a president of your own party as well as one uh, that you uh, have very little in common with in the other party. What what do you make of a Republican senator saying of a Republican president uh, that his uh, his words uh, uh, risk uh, heading us down towards a path of towards World War Three?
2: I think it's serious, but not surprising for anybody that's been watching the White House. Uh, I think it's important, if you haven't noted already, to uh, make clear that Bob Corker um, spent uh, basically the first part of this administration Um, trying to be as helpful as possible to this president. He spent a lot of time with Trump and his team, uh, really made a decision that he was going to try to be an advisor on foreign policy to provide some consistency to this administration. Uh, And so there are few senators that know uh, this president's thinking and the inner workings of the White House better than Bob Corker. Uh, And so for him to Uh, break with the president in such a public way and characterize the White House as an operation essentially centralized around um, an attempt to control the president from doing reckless things um, is, uh, I I think, even more disturbing uh, because uh, of how well he knows how that place works. The question, though, is what is he and other Republicans going to do about it? And it's not terribly constructive to just complain about it. You actually then have to take steps to try to make sure that a um, reckless, unstable president doesn't do damage to the country. And I think that'll be the question when we return to Congress or return to the Senate next week.
0: But we were also talking about math. You've got 52 Republicans. You have a two-seat two, two seat majority. The president is in a state of of basically war with, with at least four Republicans, which means he does not have a Republican governing majority right now. Um uh, and that that's been proven uh, any number of times, most most you know uh, brilliantly with with health But my my question to you as a Democrat, th- this is a president who was once a Democrat. This is a president who has shown in fits and starts uh, a, a willingness to work with Democrats. Even on your you know one, one, one of your big issues uh, on the issue of guns, he's said that he's willing to uh, to to talk. About, uh, uh, about guns. Um, what, are, are, are Republicans going to be receptive to working with Donald Trump? Do you see an opening there or has he become just so radioactive that, uh, that, that you're in full opposition mode?
2: Well, Republicans have had a difficult time moving their agenda, not just because they have a very narrow majority in the Senate, but because what they're trying to do is deeply, wildly unpopular. Um, No one supported their attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. uh, When this uh, tax bill is eventually unveiled to the public, I can guarantee you it won't be any more popular. So, you know, they are hamstrung not just by 52 votes, but also uh, by an agenda that nobody really wants. Now, I don't know that I would characterize the president as being willing to work with Democrats. He did one short-term deal on the debt ceiling and the budget with uh, Pelosi and Schumer that I would argue McConnell and Ryan wanted. uh, And they were just happy that the president did it first with the Democratic minority leaders. But aside from that, there has been no substantive work across the aisle. He has uh, made a handshake agreement on the DREAM Act, which he then went back on. He has vaguely referenced an interest to work on guns, but no one on my side of the aisle has gotten a single phone call from him or the White House about it. Uh, so I'm, I don't think that there's a lot of, of real substantive outreach coming from this administration uh, to Democrats. And I don't necessarily expect it, given the fact that on the next big issue, tax reform, they've basically telegraphed that they want to write this bill behind closed doors without Democrats.
1: And Senator, you hinted at something there about Bob Corker and and Senate Republicans. If they're truly concerned the way that they say they are, Corker is the one who's gone on the record, that they need to do something about it. What what kind of action will you be seeking? And have you heard any interest on the Republican side about, look, if 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 the, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee doesn't trust the guy driving the car taking away the keys, what can you do in the Senate to try to restrain, constrain the president?
2: Well, if you w- want uh, a... Um, check on the military as you are looking at options about North Korea, uh, then you want a strong State Department. Uh, And so one of the things we can do is, for the first time in 10 years, authorize the State Department, pass the legislation that authorizes the capabilities of the State Department, and make sure that the president can't dismantle it, as he and Rex Tillerson have set out to do. You could also authorize the existing military activity that is taking place in the Middle East. I worry that by refusing to congressionally authorize the war against ISIS, we have given a signal to the president that he has a general blank check on military activity, which may cause him to think that he can take steps in the Korean peninsula without congressional approval. So I would argue there are a series of things that we can do, maybe not directly related to the crisis in North Korea, uh, but that would send signals to the president uh, that Congress is open for business on foreign policy and that we are not handing him um, unrestrained power in that area.
1: And and shifting to the the topic of gun control, which you've been so active on over the years, uh, particularly since the the Sandy Hook uh, devastation happened in your home state. now that the dust has settled a week and a half or so uh, since Las Vegas, you have that flurry of interest. And as John referenced, some bipartisan interest potentially in looking at the bump stock issue, if not anything else. Where do things stand? Is this moment to your mind different than previous moments where you guys got pretty close to the finish line but uh, but weren't able to get it over?
2: I I think you really have to look at this through a, a, a lens that is focused outside Washington. Um, because this is really about building a political movement around the anti-gun violence uh, um, uh, movement uh, that will ultimately be as strong as the political movement that the NRA and the gun lobby has built. And uh, unfortunately, tragically, after every mass shooting, there are thousands of people who decide to devote a part of their life to stopping these uh, tragedies from happening, and the anti-gun violence movement gets stronger. Um, It is not as strong as the gun lobby, which means it has a hard time cracking through in Congress. Um, But we will eventually be as strong as they are, and we will eventually beat uh, Republicans who vote against the 80, 90 percent of their constituents that want common sense change, like universal background checks. There is an opening, as you mentioned, on this issue of bump stocks, and um, it is wholly insufficient to simply uh, essentially reaffirm Uh, the federal ban on automatic weapons, but it would be progress. And I do think it shows the first significant crack in the NRA's uh, political facade. They did not want and they do not want a legislative fight on this issue because they think they'll lose. Thus, they are trying to push the ATF to do it administratively. Um, uh, This is the first time since I've been in Congress that the NRA has shown any willingness to budge on gun laws, and I think that is because the balance of political power um, is starting to shift. So,
0: this this raises a, a general question that I was I was suggesting with with, with how Democrats uh, position their opposition to Trump and to the Trump agenda. Um, do you set up uh, the the ability to have a political issue and to fight for a bigger victory down the line, or do you? Find ways to compromise and to get half measures that move you in the right direction. And and, and put put aside guns because you addressed that. I want to address the the Dream Act. Uh, we we have a situation where the president, um, you know, has decided to do away with DACA, which, by the way, is, as as you know, did not provide a, a, anything close to a path to citizenship for the Dreamers, but but was a temporary executive uh, solution. Um, so I mean, not even a solution, but 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 a patch. Um, now, you know, the president says he wants, you know, seems to uh, suggest that he was ready for a deal with uh, with with Pelosi and Schumer on, on, a, on a legislative pick, a, a more, you know, permanent uh, fix. But are Democrats going to accept anything but total and pure victory on this? Or will you be willing to support something like the Republican uh, alternatives uh, that have been offered? I know uh, some of your Republican colleagues have put forth the Succeed Act, which would provide a path to citizenship, but a, but, but, a, but a longer time frame and is not as, uh, you know, expansive a solution as, as, as the DREAM Act, or are you going to insist on complete and total victory on this?
2: Uh, listen, I think we have to recognize the situation that we are in. Uh, we have a Republican majority in the Senate and the House and a uh, president who has, you know, already uh, declared uh, war on these kids by uh, pulling their protection Um, after an initial waiting period, I think that we have to be willing to compromise. Um, I think the details of that compromise are really important. But I was generally very supportive of the deal that was struck at the White House. Um, The idea that uh, we would give something to the president on border security and he would give permanent protection to the Dreamers sounded like a reasonable Uh, compromise. Um, I think um, that we should be open to talking to Republicans about other ideas that they may have to try to get this issue settled uh, once and for all, at least for these kids. So no, I I think it would be foolish for us to say that we want protection for the dreamers and we're willing to give nothing else. We're going to have to give something and it'll be hard. um, But I think it's the only way that you're ultimately going to get a solution for these kids who are right now desperate for help.
1: So just to button up the discussion uh, on that we had a moment ago on gun control, is it is it your view that dealing with this administratively is insufficient? Uh, that that you need legislation, and are you concerned that, as you mentioned, the, kind of the least you could do is to to address the, what is already a ban on, on automatic weapons? Is are you concerned that it's that it's a, something of a trap to? Uh, Allow the NRA to settle on something like that, and make them look like they're maybe more reasonable than they are. Is a kind of a theory I've heard out there that you may be walking into a trap by making it look like there's a concession when in fact they're not really doing anything.
2: No, I I don't. I don't think that there's danger in making progress uh, here. Um, I mean, you know, there is a full panoply of changes in our gun laws that are necessary in order to make this country safer, but I. Um, You know, I'm not so Pollyannish to think that we're going to get them all at once. So uh, I would accept some small change. Um, The problem, as you mentioned, though, is that this is one that really has to be done legislatively. What the ATF said, I think back in 2010, is that the law is really ambiguous um, when it comes to this technology, because it essentially defines an automatic weapon as one that repeatedly fires upon one pull of the trigger. And bump stocks actually um, uh, uh, cause a semi-automatic weapon to act like an automatic weapon by using the recoil of the gun to pull the trigger very quickly in succession. So technically, under the law, it's difficult for the ATF to do this administratively, which is why we need a change in statute. So I think we've got to do this in Congress. I think it's uh, hard, if not possible, for the ATF to do this, given the state of the underlying statute.
0: All right, Senator Chris Murphy. I want to thank you for joining us in Powerhouse Politics. Before you go, though, I I, I heard uh talk that you have ruled out a run for president in 2020 we rick and i had you on our list of, of possible candidates do, do we crossed do we, off do we, there he do goes we, do we have to cross you off the list or can we, or can we keep you on as, as as a possibility we're doing it in ink the list
1: in ink so be careful
2: yeah it's hard it's hard to sort of figure out different ways to say this uh but what i'm what i'm trying to communicate in as many different ways possible is that i have an election in 2018, and so all of my focus is on asking the people of Connecticut to send me back to the uh, to the United States Senate. And I know everybody thinks that you know every member of the Democratic Caucus in the Senate is you know starting to noodle their 2020 plans right now. But for me, I am focused. It's only on about two 28- thirds. Uh- yeah is' maybe two thirty any yeah, any uh anybody with a with a with a pulse uh, <laughs> um i uh no, so my focus is on tw- is is right now on on my reelection and you know I'll cross bridges uh that come after twenty eighteen at that point
0: all right all right so in other words, we should keep you on our list because I heard nothing you say there uh rule out a uh, a possible run for president um something that you're not going to even begin thinking about until you win re-election, but, uh, but but you're certainly not ruling it out. Am I correct? I'm thinking
2: about one thing and one thing only right now, and that is my re-election in 2018. All right, so, the, so in other
0: words, the, you're not thinking about ruling it out?
2: I am thinking only about my re-election in 2018.
1: We're writing it down in pencil. That's fine. I'm, the list, I'm right. keeping them on the list, Rick. All right. There we go. There okay. we go.
2: <laughs> All right. All right.
0: Senator Murphy, thank you very much, and enjoy your... Uh, Your time up in Connecticut. We'll see you back here next week. See you guys. Uh, so, Rick, that was basically a declaration of candidacy.
1: <laughs> That's what counts as one. You're in the middle of tw- the middle 2016, 2016- 2017. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, so our, that, when that, everybody that,
0: says I'm focused on, you uh, know, okay. You know, yeah, there, there,
1: there may be another little podcast that goes on over at another <laughs> network where they made some news that we just unmade right here. We're not
0: sure. Did you hear him te- tell us to take his name uh, off the list? I did, did not, you hear that? I did not. I, I, mean, did, not did, did I did, did not. I, did I not offer that opportunity?
1: I didn't. You you'd I certainly did. I mean, you got did. the list right over there. I, I mean, is that? It's <laughs> like I have an and tablet. you were ready to I mean, cross it off? I was, were- I was. We no, we we definitely didn't have that opportunity. And we had, like Chris Murphy Thoughtful guy, serious guy, working working it hard on, on these things. Uh, if 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 he is indeed reelected in that tough battleground state of Connecticut, yes, I mean the uh,
0: Republicans uh, are going to put uh, who's Bannon's uh, going to be supporting him?
1: in Connecticut? guy, Mostly, Bannon, yeah. Bannon's guy, a Wall Street guy, no doubt, <laughs> yeah, uh, living yeah. in Greenwich. Uh, but but look, he, he, the the progress that he sees right now on guns—that's a real thing uh, and uh, part of a part of what would be a, a national resume. But uh, by all accounts, like I said, a serious guy.
0: Rhetorically, he was supporting the idea of, uh, of trying to of, – of compromise yeah. um, both the guns and immigration. Uh, I got to tell you, I think they're – I mean it will be interesting to see if that actually goes down. There are a lot of Republicans that – I mean a lot of Democrats that basically see blood here and, yeah. uh, and, and they're not going to be willing to accept what they will consider half measures and their base will certainly consider half measures. Uh, we'll have to do another, you know, we'll have, to, we'll have to explore this a little further. But we've got to take a quick break, Rick, because right around the corner, we are going to talk to Bill Crystal. Uh, one of the, uh, the, the basically the, the, the leaders of the resistance to the to the Bannon effort to take over the Republican Party, which I think is kind of succeeding. I don't know. Where well, are we?
1: it's, it's it's something so far, but it's funny that, that he is he's viewed as uh, as the defender of, uh, of an embattled something. He's Mr. <laughs> Mr. Establishment himself, but Bill yeah. Crystal, uh, a thoughtful guy in his own right. We'll, we'll be back with him after the break.
2: Hey, this is Dan Harris, and uh, I want to tell you about my podcast called 10% Happier. You can listen every Wednesday for new guests and new perspectives. Some of these are people you know, uh, celebrities, athletes, executives. Uh, Some of them are uh, more obscure people that I'm obsessed with that I think you might be obsessed with once you uh, give them a listen. And you can hear about how they're using meditation to up their game in all these interesting areas of life. Again, the podcast is called 10% Happier. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now, and subscribe today. Hey there, it's Mara esquiavo from Good Morning America. Like so many people, I've struggled to find that perfect balance between health and happiness. Name a diet, I've probably tried it. Crazy workout plan, yep, I've done that too. But I learned it was my approach that was actually weighing me down. After losing 90 pounds, I discovered it's not just about reaching a healthy weight, It's about finding peace and freedom. I have a podcast called Motivated, focused on all things health and wellness. Join the conversation. Search Motivated on Apple Podcasts and subscribe today.
0: All right. We're joined by friend of the podcast, Bill Kristol, editor-at-large of the Weekly Standard, uh, a regular on ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos and a host of other people. Um, Thank you for joining us. Good to be
3: with you. Right here in studio, it's exciting. On you know, there Politics. hasn't been this much political I mean, wisdom in one I mean, one small God. room at the ABC headquarters. Is this safe since, to have us all in one place? I yeah, mean. that's a good question. <laughs> Ask Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> let's make sure. I'm, I'm getting out of here in ten minutes before Trump finds out about this meeting. Yeah,
0: yeah. So let me let me uh, begin with what the heck Steve Bannon is up to. I, I I you know he's he's threatened to go and recruit and support primary challengers for. Every Republican senator up for re-election, with the exception of Ted Cruz. Interesting. Um, And uh, he's already one for one um, in terms of the special election in Alabama. Uh, Is this going to be – is this a a, a kind of an existential threat to the Republicans, or is this going to be kind of he's got his one victory because Roy Moore was an exceptional case, and it's not going to matter much?
3: I think it matters. I mean, I began thinking it matters in Virginia, where I happened to live a few months ago, when Corey Stewart – who, as you recall, was I think fired from the Trump campaign in October of 2016 because he was so kind of extreme and uh, you know out of control, almost beat Ed Gillespie in the Virginia Republican uh, governor's primary, and Gillespie had run a good campaign in 2014, almost beat Senator Mark Warner, and I thought, geez, if Corey Stewart can get 47, 48 percent of the vote against Gillespie, the mood of the primary electorate is to say the least, anti-establishment or Trumpy, and we know from data that what Trump has support of. Depends how you measure it. Two thirds, three quarters, eighty uh, percent of Republican primary voters, um, and then the Moore victory in Alabama. I think means that this would have been happening spontaneously. If you're a young, if you're a Trumpy state senator in some uh, state, and you it's an open seat, maybe the Republicans could pick up a Senate seat or this Republican incumbent. I think you think to yourself, "Gee, why shouldn't I take a shot at it?" Especially if Trump's going to weigh in, maybe on my behalf, or at least not weigh in against me. There's some money there with Rebecca Mercer. Uh, and the Mercer family behind Steve Bannon. There's some publicity with Breitbart and Bannon, and then of course Bannon is in a way taking more credit for things than he deserves. Probably Roy Moore was already a sort of famous, uh, you know, uh, agitator and and had won you know a couple of times in Alabama statewide. But Bannon now, I, so I take it seriously, and I look. I think he. I don't think it's any great mystery. Steve Bannon wants to destroy the old Republican Party. He doesn't agree with it. He thinks it's bad for the country. He doesn't like free trade. He doesn't like moderate immigration policies. He doesn't like old-fashioned Republican internationalism. Uh, He wants this kind of European-style populist new right upheaval, and he's going about trying to make it happen. And I, you know, given the mood of the country, given that Trump is in the White House more or less supporting this, I take it pretty seriously. So you're you're good at seeing political trends. What where does it lead? Does the
0: Republican Party remake itself in the image uh, that has been offered by uh, by Steve Bannon? Uh, does the Republican Party break apart to to, to irrelevance? Uh, wh- where does this go? Where are we?
3: Where are we a few years down the road? I don't know. <laughs> um, I would have said a few months ago, most likely the Republican Party looks three or five years from now sort of like it looked three or five years ago more likely trump is you know a phenomenon has some effect but the parties the parties have a pretty good record in america of sort of absorbing these forces adjusting to them changing their message a little bit obviously the democrats have done that with with, uh, insurgent challenges from the left the republicans with insurgent challenges from the right from all the way back to goldwater and reagan to the tea party Uh, But they have tended to absorb these. At the end of the day, the parties have remained more or less recognizably the same. But we haven't really had an, an outside radical populist insurgent challenge with their guy in the White House. This typically happens when you're the out party, and it's a tea party. 2010 would be a good example. 2012, and you get your Ted Cruz and your Marco Rubio, and you get some new stars in the party, and you get some blown Senate races where the candidates are too extreme in Nevada or Delaware, and you get a lot of turmoil, and then it sort of settles down, and they're part of the Republican conference, and they're either a small part of the party or a medium-sized part of the party, or in the case of the McGovernites, they eventually take over the old Democratic Party. But we just haven't seen this with a president, in effect, supporting the insurgency against the entire party establishment. We have—it It is amazing. Think about it. We have a huge civil war going on in a party, one of the two major parties, when that party is in power, when that party controls the White House and Congress. And we have the president basically against the Senate majority leader and the speaker. I don't think we've ever seen this in our lifetime. So I take it seriously. I think the odds of a real crack up of the Republican Party are much greater than I would have thought, you know, six months ago.
1: So let's talk about the president's role in this, because it is different. This isn't a ragtag group of challengers. If they have Bannon and the Mercer money and the Breitbart wing and the president. Now, he was on the other side in Alabama, but I think it's Nominally. Nominally, at least. Is your assumption that he is going to work actively against multiple Senate Incumbents, Republican incumbents uh, in the coming months? And if so, what do you do about it? I mean, it's it's almost like your money's no good here if you dump a lot of cash in and you're only propping up the image that you're helping out Mitch McConnell and Washington Insiders.
3: I mean, I don't know if he'll literally endorse, you know, Tea Party or not Tea Party, a Trumpy challenger to John Barrasso. On the other hand, his willingness to take on McConnell a couple of months ago and then Corker this past week is very revealing. I mean, people take Jeff it. Jeff Flake. Yeah. Indian. Yeah. But people Heller, take it. Heller, right. Saying. And these are guys, again, it's, this is not Susan Collins, John McCain, people who voted against him on a key legislative priority, or in the case of Murkowski and think Collins, a couple of, what, at least one important nomination. These are people whose voting has been, they voted for the Obamacare repeal <laughs> and replace. They voted for, so far as I know, every Trump nominee, really. They haven't been particularly critical of his major policy. Uh, agendas they've said a couple of things he didn't like, so people interpret that correctly as being Trump being trump he's incredibly thin skinned he doesn't think about the implications of what he's saying he's screwing up his legislative agenda, but even that that's all true, but let's also say that maybe Trump also has the attitude that he's almost looking for excuses to take these guys down. He's not unhappy that Bob Corker is retiring has announced his retirement from the Senate. He regards that as a chance to get a much more— He's taking credit for it. Yeah, and they, that's a good—right, and he regards it as a chance to get a senator who's much more in his style. He's not unhappy that Jeff Flake is losing in the polls, behind in the polls in Arizona. Now, whether this can be pulled off, whether they're going to lose a bunch of Senate seats because they'll have less uh, electable uh, candidates in the general election, I mean, we can sit around and think about this. But I think from his point of view, again, he's being a little more rational—rational may not be the word, but he's being more purposeful. Than people think, or at least Bannon is certainly being purposeful. And Trump, because of his vanity and his thin skin and his whatever, you know, is sort of willing to go along with Bannon's agenda. So I don't know if he really endorses these opponents to Deb Fisher or John Barrasso or other people, or Tarkanian against Heller even in Nevada. But um, it, it, but even if he doesn't endorse them, if he says ambivalent things, if he says they're both good candidates, if his people on the ground, the Trump supporters in that state, endorse them. Uh, it, it has an effect. It signals to some of the money people to go in, the Trump money people to go in on Trump's side. It probably signals the question is, does it signal to the other money people to stay out? I mean, is the Chamber of Commerce intimidated well, yeah. from supporting establishment Republicans if Trump, sometimes, I mean, Thad Cochran, 2014 Mississippi, you guys covered this race a lot, this guy McDaniel almost beats him. I think mm-hmm. ahead of him in the, in the first round in the first and first then loses one. the runoff by like a point, right? huge establishment, money, Chamber of Commerce and so forth, comes in for the Senate old Senate bull, Thad Cochran. Um how does that play out with Trump that's no Trump, that's just a twenty fourteen with Obama in the White House. How does that race in effect play out uh, with Trump either weighing in or not. And also, does the chamber want to get crosswise of Trump if they have to work with him on tax reform? Suddenly, a lot of the sources of est- the big donors, individual donors, want to get cross. So some of the big sources of, of establishment Republican money could get a little bit frozen. So I don't think the balance of power is as hostile or as disadvantageous to Bannon as people sort of think right now. You've got to think dynamically. And again, we've never really do- gone through this exercise with Trump in the White House. So lay out the defense
1: then. I mean, it's, it's difficult. Uh, you're going to be a key part of it. People are going to be looking to you and the pages of your magazine to, for direction on this. And I'm sure you'll be involved in organizing it. But what, how do you defend Republican establishments in the era of Trump? If he goes out there, he endorses, he works, or, or he just works kind of implicitly against the whole crop of, of incumbents who represent for millions of Trump voters the swamp.
3: Well, probably a lot of conversations are being held on this in places like the Chamber, but think of the NRA. The NRA is an incredibly effective lobby, but their mode has always been, we don't care in general about people's views, and we don't really care, frankly, if people are, like, emotional about guns. We want people who will vote for us, with us on every key gun vote. And if you vote with us on every key gun vote, we're with you. That would characterize, I've got to think, the huge majority of Republicans who are on the ballot this year. Uh, but if they're members at the local—I mean, what are they—are they going to weigh in to, to save a John Barrasso against a challenger who's also totally pro-gun? So I think there are a lot of conversations like the one you sort of just discussed going on today. And one problem is this. I mean, if you're—frankly, if you're anti-Trump like me, it's not hard to say this is bad, bad, it's bad, Trump's bad, it's, this would be bad for the country. If you're an establishment Republican who's gone along with Trump, bent over backwards to work with Trump, uh, wants to look—understanding of Trump, and then they're kind of caught a little bit betwixt and between. I'm not saying they're foolish to not antagonize all the Trump voters in their states, but I noticed Corker, to Corker and Trump had this fight. John Barrasso, the senator from Wyoming, was asked about it a couple of days ago, and he was like, "Well, I no, I don't think Senator Corker should have gone that far." And I, I try very, I, I look, I work closely with President Trump, and look forward to working with him in the future. So if you're anti-Trump, you're not very excited to go out of your way to help John Barrasso. And I don't know how many anti-Trump people there are who would matter. And if you're pro-Trump, you sort of figure, well, I don't know, Barrasso's for Trump too, but why don't I get someone who's really enthusiastic about Trump? So I can see why the establishment Republicans don't want to be in a you know, trench warfare with Donald Trump, who right now is President of the United States and is pretty popular still with the Republican base. But the problem with not being willing to go to war with him is you sort of end up in a no man's land in the middle, I think.
0: So you're still a Republican?
3: Uh, Yeah, we don't have party registration in Virginia, so uh, it's— Well, you consider yourself a Republican uh, still. I consider myself, yes, and someone who hopes the Republican Party can be, so to speak, saved. But I I honestly would have—if you had asked me that nine months ago, I wouldn't have hesitated before answering, and I would have said, Uh, Sort of on Rick's point here, I mean, you know, I kind of expect to be working in various ways or helping, you know, save the Republican Party from bananism and from Trumpism. I really now am uncertain whether the project is to save the Republican Party or just to say there needs to be some force in American politics that is old-fashioned, you know, Reaganite internationalist and pro-trade and pro-liberal democracy and so forth. And uh, maybe that force is going to be a new force in American politics. Now, God knows the efforts to start third parties and and, and that kind of thing is, have not succeeded for a long time in American politics. So one hesitates to go down that road. But I'm I'm just personally more open to it and more uncertain, I guess, is the way to put it, about the future. And I think a lot of people have that attitude. I do think in this respect, the fact that Trump has been able to sustain his support in the Republican Party, he hasn't been very successful uh, legislatively. And it's not like he's looking very strong he's at 40 percent or something approval despite a very strong economy etc still I think it's a little harder you know when the establishment bends over backwards over and over again to get along with Trump it's sort of what are you saving here there's no real nothing to rally to it does someone should go I haven't looked at this but if you look at the Democrats and after uh, 68 after Johnson's presidency It's sort of a democratic establishment that's assaulted by the Gene McCarthy, you know, uh, uh, George McGovern forces. And my impression, and I was in high school and then college at the time, and my impression looking back is that that establishment didn't really believe in what it used to believe in. It wasn't really an old-fashioned John Kennedy, Harry Truman kind of Democratic Party anymore. And they were sort of defensive vis-a-vis the McGovernites and they therefore didn't fight them very effectively. And they they sort of hung on, you know, for a while. But at the end of the day, the McGovernites kind of systematically moved through the party at every level, local politics, state politics, national politics, as they're entitled to to do. It's a free country. People can try to advance their own ideas in parties. And I sort of, it feels to me like the Republican parties in that kind of uh, condition. The the Bannonites have conviction. The establishments hunkered down playing defense.
0: But but I want to get to the, the, the third-party question, which is, if you look at how far left the Democrats are charging, um, there's, th- there's not much room, it seems, in that party for, uh, certainly on the presidential, national level, uh, for, for moderates, either on uh, economic issues, uh, uh, international issues, and, and the crack-up of the, or the apparent crack-up of the Republican Party, the o- o- outright civil war, the rise of Bannonism, isn't this, I mean, why isn't this a unique time where there's a, I mean, wh- wh- where do those voters go? Where do the moderate Democrats go? Where do the, you know, the Bill Crystal Republicans go? And why wouldn't it be a third party?
3: I think it could be. I think it could be a unique time. And if ever there's a chance, I would say it's 2020 if you have it. Donald Trump, let's say Elizabeth Warren presidential race. Incidentally, and you know, we say that and people I say this sometimes in speeches and people go, oh, or but, a Donald
0: Trump Bernie Sanders right.
3: race. But is an actual political science matter, if I can put it that way? Donald Trump is obviously the most likely Republican nominee in twenty twenty. I hope he wouldn't be, but I think most presidents get renominated the huge majority by their party, and probably the most likely Democratic nominee if you just had to do a sort of betting odds thing. Right now is Sanders or Warren, maybe Joe Biden if he were to run. But normally, the person who ran second and got forty-five percent of the vote in one round does get the nomination the next time. You know, Hillary Clinton got it after in twenty sixteen after two thousand eight. McCain got it in two thousand eight after two thousand. Romney got it in twenty twelve. So yeah, doesn't that race open up? A, yeah, doesn't that race open up a big gap in the center? And it does. Now, the most likely outcome of that, I suppose, you would argue, one would argue, is you know. Trump 40 percent, Democrats 40 percent, centrist candidate 20 percent, Ross Perot type situation, doesn't get many electoral votes. But, you know, that's been the way it was, but that, it doesn't mean it has to be that way. And, uh, yeah, I do kind of think you can imagine uh, uh, a dynamic where you really have a genuine three-way race. Uh, who the right candidate is. I mean, someone, look, these things are all theoretical. Someone has to step forward. Is it Kasich Hickenlooper, you know, to moderately, a moderate Republican governor, moderate Democratic governor? Not crazy, I don't think. Is it Ben Sass and some Democrat? Is it a businessman, Mark Cuban? I mean, I think a lot of people are going to look at this. Um, but yeah, I think the odds, you would never want to say that the odds of this happening are, you know, better than 50-50 or something. But I would say something that one would have dismissed in the past as a... I don't know. What do you think? One in 20 shot, one in 50 shot, Something like that is now more like a one in five shot. And that's that makes it real. I want to ask about the Bob Corker
1: thing again for a moment, because I think we get so attuned to these feuds. Trump versus fill in the blank, the the Pope, Captain Khan, John McCain and Megyn Kelly this is not, to my mind, just Trump v. Corker, because Corker is a guy that was trying to play the game. He was trying to work with Trump. He was trying to work the inside and the outside every step of the way. And when he comes out and says there's this perception that there's good cop, bad cop going on, and I don't think that's the case, he's not talking about some policy disagreement or something that's going to add to the deficit or lose a vote. He's talking about nuclear war. To me, there's, this is a different level of a party crack up. This is a guy raising the alarms about the potential of what he says is World War III. Do you feel like that changes the debate or do we go back to the sides of, well, Trump, they're, they're, both sides should just quiet down and this is just Trump
3: being Trump? I don't know that World War. Th- I mean, I'm not sure. I would have put it as World War Three. I mean, you can. That's his words. Yeah, it is. No, I totally just agree. The chairman of the I'm Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Right. Campaign. So I'm, I'm not sure that he helped himself by making it because I don't know that people think that's exactly the, likely with Kelly and Mattis and those guys there. But I mean, yeah. So I think it's different from. I'd say it's one thing to oppose to be very skeptical about a Republican nominee, especially one that people assume was going to lose. It's another thing to be very skeptical about a Republican president. So in that respect, what's happening now is different from what happened a year ago with as you say, with the Khan family or something. Uh, and look, the Republicans have, been try, have tried to accommodate Trump. There hasn't been for all the, you know, the media is very, we're all interested in covering any expression of either private or public, you know, private one that leaks of, of reservation or of uh, doubt about Trump. But I would say, actually, there hasn't been that much of that. I mean, if you think about how much of an outlier Trump is, how much how reckless Trump is in terms of his statements and some of his deeds, there's been a heck of a lot of punch pulling, not punch throwing, by Republicans on the Hill. So Trump, so Corker says one thing, or McConnell's reported, I guess, as saying, having said something, and suddenly Trump's attacking them. So I very much agree with you. I, this feels different. It feels like Trump is not uh, reciprocating the punch pulling at all, and you do wonder whether some of Corker's colleagues, eight is a seven affecting the real world. I mean, do people just decide, well? you know, we're not going to bend over backwards to vote for some legislation we don't much like or a nominee we don't much like because Trump's asking us to. That will be interesting in terms of taxes, I'd say, tax reform. But B, is there a broader rebellion? But it's hard. It's hard with a president of your own party. It just doesn't happen very often if you think about it historically. And you usually need something in the real world. I mean, people might have had doubts about LBJ, but you need, frankly, Vietnam to go very badly until there's a genuine you know, William Fulbright to take a previous chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to sort of oppose the president of his own party and right now foreign to bring policy in a young guy named john Kerry and have a big hearing yeah right know. think about it. I mean, that is i mean it probably it's would long be long worth long. it would be worth all of us going back and reading that history <laughs> but see, if you think about it what's the last time there was a majority party that really cracked up and changed its character and went yeah. through a huge election defeat a huge primary challenge uh, but then ended up winning with that loss you know the drama of that uh, the, the back and forth of that probably is maybe like what the republicans are going to go through but you, you so far, Trump's had a been very lucky with the economy. I would say well, lucky, but it's coasted along, and um, no obvious disasters in foreign policy for all the, you know, things that might seem reckless or or worrisome. And I suspect it would probably take a real world event to really get people beyond the grumbling to the actual, you know, forthright opposition.
0: All right, we've got to let you go before you do. Quick question on the Alabama Senate race. Now that the uh, Bannon supported, but obviously his own man, uh, Roy Moore, has won the primary down there. Is it for 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 Bill Crystal Republicans? Is it better if Roy Moore wins election in Alabama or if he
3: loses and a Democrat uh, gets elected from you know the, the? I'm not sure which yeah which is better from the point of view of like future of the Republican Party considerations, I think, look, if I lived in Alabama, could I vote for Roy Moore? I think the answer is no. Would I vote for this other fellow, Jones? I don't know much about him, honestly, so Mm -hmm. I'd have to look at that. How many people are like me in Alabama? Probably not enough. (laughs) I mean, I think, well, well, I think, I think Moore will underperform, you know, Jeff Sessions, let's say, or, or Rick or Shelby, but... And not, not enough. I've been look, curious. I looked at that who's, race. Who's Shelby going to vote for well, in, in, in the secret? Well, you do that, wonder, that, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, and incidentally, is it totally out of the question that Doug Jones makes it very competitive in Alabama? It's an awfully red state, obviously. But there there's a December
0: po- election. Who the but hell? There's knows some polling what's that, going that shows it yes. in
3: single digits, and I wouldn't be. I think as an outside chance, Jones could win or make it very close. I do think, in that respect, we have a couple of indicators where the country is and where the party is coming up with the November ele- gubernatorial elections. In New Jersey probably Democrats might easily, but Virginia will be important, and there are actually state uh, assembly, uh, state legislative elections that could be legislative elections that could be interesting in Virginia. And then I think the Alabama December 12th election. Um, and then, of course, then we go into all these primaries in 2018. It's going to be – we've just – it's going to be interesting. I'm not sure it's good for the country, but interesting to see what happens in all these states in 2018. We saw the Tea Party stuff in 2010, 2012, but that was a few states, and it was sort of episodic uh, to have, as I say, uh, this kind of insurgent challenge with a president more or less on your side will be interesting
0: it just seems to me that if roy moore loses that would be a shot that would be a huge okay you're gonna you're, you're gonna get these you know no, extreme candidates uh elected in these primaries if you can actually find a way to lose in alabama you know uh good so good, good luck mitch, in that case yeah.
3: shouldn't mitch mcconnell's pack and all yeah, these, i'm yeah, serious and all the establishment guys put money behind quietly behind doug jones the democrats do this Maybe, all the time right, right? well didn't yeah. claire mccaskill put some money into her pack, put some money behind was the guy in Missouri who, uh, yeah, yeah, the weaker, yeah. Aiken, the, Aiken right. the weaker candidate. I think Harry Reid was happy. That right. her, his but this would be said,
0: the general, so this is a step beyond that. Yes, that is a step beyond, yes, it, a step is, beyond it. But but, in, but it's in Mitch McConnell's interest, isn't it, that, that, that Roy Moore loses?
3: I think I mean, so. I think he's better off with 51 Republicans, one of whom's not Roy Moore, than 52 <laughs> Republicans, one of whom is Roy Moore. So let's, we should follow closely. ABC has a lot of resources to do this. Yeah. The, you know, Quiet donations of various super PACs and donors that are close to Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, and other other yeah. establishment Republicans. Yeah. yeah,
0: very good. All right, Bill Crystal, uh, the Weekly Standard, uh, ABC contributor. Thank you for uh, for joining us here. I Really appreciate it. Thank you. And that is it for Powerhouse Politics. For Rick Klein, I'm Jonathan Carl. Join us again next week. And remember, you know, subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a review after this podcast. I hope you'll give us, you know, how many stars can they do, Rick?
1: I think as as many as as Bill Crystal's best odds on uh, on that third party challenger least, right. Like right. give right. us
3: something.
0: All right, that's great. Thank you. We'll see you next week.